0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Library, and welcome to the 2012 Mankin Day celebration. Um, as you can see, I came in with my new dandy t-shirt, and I'm hoping that all of you will get one. And I hope that some of you had a chance to listen to um, Mr. Manken yesterday on the Dan Roderick show. They played the only existing tape of uh, an interview with him, uh, he drove over from Baltimore with a young um, reporter, basically from The Sun, and they went to the Library of Congress, and already I was feeling jealous, there he is in the Library of Congress, and just an open-ended uh, conversation. And every year, as the uh, we have this celebration, we always think about what Mankin would say about the events of today. And just listening to him yesterday um, was just, you, you got a, a real sense of it, and his, uh, actually, uh, his humility in a, in a weird kind of way. <laughs> um, so as we listen to debates and think about the issues of today, Mencken is being quoted, many of you know, um, even more, than before, and you definitely can find ways to think about him as we go through this election season. I'd like to thank, as we do every year, the members of the Mencken Society who we consider members of the Pratt family. Your support through all of these years has really kept the uh, legacy of Mr. Mencken alive. And we have, I think, a wonderful day today because we are celebrating his birthday as well as the 204th um, birthday of the Enig Pratt Free Library's founder, Mr. Pratt. And so we have two great men that are being celebrated at this time. Many of you know that H.L. Mencken was actually a product of the Pratt Library and when he was a child he visited the Branch number two, there were four originals in his old neighborhood at Hollands and Calhoun Street. And one of the things when we listened to the tape yesterday and he talked about giving the notes that he had taken on different, on American language and things to the library. And we knew what that legacy meant because in giving his literary estate to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, Mr. Mankin has helped ensure that Mr. Pratt's legacy will continue as well, and that was one of the greatest gifts that we could ever have, because the Pratt Library now has the largest and the most important, we think, with our now partner um, Hopkins uh, collection in the world, and we own three-fourths of his estate. He began to donate material during his lifetime and continued until after his death in 1956. And you, the members of the Megan Society who are here, are making sure that we at the Pratt are careful guardians of his legacy. And we thank you for that. Because we'd like to remember also Mr. Stan Harrison, who passed away earlier this year. For more than a decade, he was the editor of Yana, And we thank him for his dedication and passion for Mencken and the Pratt Library, and he will truly be missed. And so when we thought about how can we continue to honor his work and all he put into Yana, especially going into the digital age, when we are now, the Pratt Library is the sixth most followed library in the world on Twitter. Now, I have been told that that is a very distinguished thing to be. <laughs> and that's another time that you could imagine Mr. Minkin talking about the tweets and the t- on Twitter and what he would have said about that one. Uh, however, we are, and our electronic visitors are more than the 2 million people that walked through the entire library system last year, 35 million people visited our website and one of the most popular uh, sites or areas on the Pratt Library website is the one that has to do with Mr. Mencken. And so mencken is now in the blogosphere and to continue to keep him alive on that and that we are very pleased to have the new editor of mencken here today. She has uh, more than 20 years of journalism experience we could think of no better person for the job because she started out as a critic of the Pratt Library and a lot of the things that we were doing and we had a lot of tough um, discussions with her about the Southeast Anchor Library. And so the fact that uh, we know that she is just as curmudgeonly uh, (laughs) uh, skeptical and uh, we're a little afraid of her. Miss uh, <laughs> Jackie Watts, the new editor of Mankin So <laughs> she's, she's going to make sure that we're on our toes. And also, we'd love you to meet our manager of our special collections department, Michael Johnson. He oversees the Mankin collection with Mr. Fitzgerald. And he has added a lot in terms of his michael. Could you stand up? There you go, Michael. So with Vince and Michael, Michael is gonna be digitizing and doing that. So we're really getting into um, uh, making sure that the legacy continues. And it's now my pleasure to introduce today's special guest. Um, and when you think about the topic, the scopes the scopes trial, how the letter kills, um, with all of the discussion about uh, what is humanness. uh, Our guest today is the Professor Emeritus of English at Boston College. He's taught at Princeton University and at Boston College from 1975 to 2009 and his publications include H.L. Mencken, a Descriptive Bibliography and H.L. Mencken, a Documentary So, without further ado, please welcome to Mencken Day 2012, Professor Richard Schrader.
1: Uh, I have several thank yous to get out of the way. I'm going to seize this occasion to thank some of the many people that I'm indebted to for many years of help and inspiration in my uh, Mencken scholarship. First of all, the Pratt Library for the many happy days I spent in the old Mencken Room and for inviting me to give this talk, to Art Gutman for his guidance and friendship during the last 30 years, to Vince Fitzpatrick for numerous collaborations and frequent scholarly advice, to David Thaler, another collaborator and also publisher, Uh, To those prodigious scholars, Marion Rogers and S.T. Joshi, for letting me in on some of their work. And to Frank Foreman, Ray Stevens, Jack Sanders, and Chris Wilson for helping me form the parts of this talk that were tried out on my fellow gogs, as Mencken would call us, during the Modern Language Association annual convention in, in the year 2000. Since then, I have benefited from recent Mencken Society talks and other material to be found in the journal Menckeniana. And I hope I will do them justice. They were important because of the lack of a university library in my present rustic setting, of Sebring, Ohio. And I trust that I haven't overlooked any blockbusters. I'm sure you'll let me know if I have. Now, as a professor, my primary field was the Middle Ages. And so at the end, I'll try to clear the air if my voice lasts, I suffer from dry throat, dry mouth. You know, all those pills you take always say one of the side effects is dry mouth. All my pills say that. Uh, uh, as I say, I was a medievalist by profession, and Mencken was kind of a sideline. Though I had some excellent training in, in the in the twenties, and I'm, as I say, I'm going to try to clear the air a little bit at the end. Uh, with evidence that some medievals may have had a more sensible approach to the creation story in Genesis than either William Jennings Bryan or Henry Louis (laughs) Mencken. In my harangue to the Gogs, I stressed how Mencken scripted the trial during and after the event and how his version was perpetuated by Inherit the Wind, both the play and the movie and by historians like Richard Hofstetter, who reduced the trial to a case of fundamentalist intolerance versus science or progress or cosmopolitanism. Better assessments may be found in three more recent books about God by Gary Wills, Under God, Edward Larson, Summer for the Gods, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and Karen Armstrong, The Battle for God, all of which I have drawn upon. My colleagues back then needed a longer introduction to both Mencken and the Scopes trial than is necessary for this audience. I will make that background a preface to discussion of what resulted from the literal-minded way that fundamentalists approached the Bible and their opponents approached Darwin and Nietzsche. None of them heeded the dictum of St. Paul that inspired readers of an earlier age. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life." More than 85 years after the events in July 1925, practically all that is popularly known, in quotation marks, about the trial is what Mencken wanted known, just as some reference works still claim, thanks to Mencken, that Millard Fillmore brought the first bathtub into the White House. (laughs) One might say that his version of the Scopes trial was a hoax on the order of that other bit of bunkum, with Mencken imagining a more colorful drama than the real one uh, before it was held, then recording the trial as it happened in such a way that actual events and issues would be buried beneath the greatest satire of the century. Mencken did to William Jennings Bryan what Woodrow Wilson's propagandists did to Kaiser Wilhelm. The trial was the high point of Mencken's lifelong crusade to discredit religion, which he saw as retrograde, a survival from an infantile stage in human development. In other words, he viewed it, as he did most things, through the lens of a 19th century mindset, one that takes for granted the romantic evolutionary developmental model. And uh, it takes it for granted and finds its gospel in Darwin, Nietzsche, and the positivist higher criticism, which originated in the 19th century, and which subjected the Bible to the same sort of literary analysis as any other religious text, interpreting its so-called truths in light of its historical and cultural context, as opposed to treating it as the inerrant word of God. Uh, Born in 1880, Mencken claimed to have made up his mind on practically everything very early in life. Though rooted in the past, his biases regarding the Scopes trial happened to correspond to those of the leading media. Mencken's libertarianism, which is 19th century liberalism was not widely condemned as reactionary until it was directed at Franklin Roosevelt during the depression. Paradoxically, William Jennings Bryan was 20 years older than Mencken, and yet he was truly progressive in that a great many of his political ideas were enacted well into the 20th century. And he would certainly have supported the New Deal. Thanks to Mencken's script, Tennessee's plans went awry. The Anti-Evolution Butler Act, was broadly supported when it was passed in 1925, but most Tennesseans didn't care one way or the other. Bryan, in fact, opposed it because of uh, uh, the penalty that was attached to it, the punitive aspect of it. And the governor who signed it into law thought of it as more symbolic than anything else. Darwin had appeared in textbooks for some time. The one that John Scopes supposedly taught from which was called a civic biology by John W. Hunter, Hunter's civic biology, had been used in Tennessee since 1909. The ACLU advertised for someone to challenge the law, and Dayton won out among contending cities and their publicists because Scopes was willing to come forward even though he probably did not break the law. He admitted to a reporter that he missed the class on evolution, and that's why Clarence Darrow never put him on the stand. The ACLU intended to raise a constitutional issue and was unhappy with Darrow's presence on the defense. He had a well-earned reputation as a showboat. though scopes wanted him. Darrow, in cahoots with Mencken and the sympathetic media, aimed primarily to discredit fundamentalism, which he did in the famous grilling of Brian on the next to last day of the trial, after Mencken left because he had already assumed that Brian had won. However, that non-testimony was never heard by the jury or entered in the trial record. It was part of that other shadow trial that everyone knows. The prosecution won the actual trial because Darrow, in fact, changed the plea to guilty on, uh, on the final day. He did it for two reasons, to avoid a counter-interrogation by Brian on the merits of Darwin, which was Brian's condition for agreeing to testify as an expert on the, on the Bible. And also, Darrow wanted to have the law tested more quickly, higher up. But thanks to that other trial, Brian, the great commoner, has become Mencken's and America's classic dunce. The image of Brian, created by Darrow and Mencken, was given definitive form in Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee's play, Inherit the Wind, 1955. Everyone thus knows Brian well for such lost causes as biblical literalism and prohibition but few are aware that for 30 years he was the most important figure in American reform politics. Among other things, he was nominated for president three times and was Woodrow Wilson's secretary of state until he resigned over the country's being led into the Great War, just as he had opposed militarism and imperialism during the Spanish-American War. He championed railroad regulation, currency reform, state initiative and referendum a Department of Labor, campaign finance disclosure, and opposition to the death penalty. He was a majoritarian and helped secure ratification of four amendments to the Constitution, all of them designed to promote a more democratic or righteous society. They brought about the direct election of senators, a progressive federal income tax, prohibition to be sure, and female suffrage. When Bryan died of diabetes on July 25th, shortly after the trial, libertarian Mencken claimed to have killed him and some liberal historians tried to do the same to his legacy. As late as 1920, Bryan did not want to forbid teaching evolution. He merely desired to have it treated as one biological theory, an unproven theory and not a fact. Though his position hardened, He did not like the punitive aspect of the case and offered ahead of time to pay any fine that was levied on scopes. He was not arguing that creationism be taught in the schools. He assumed the biblical account could not be taught and wanted the evolutionary view of human origins banned for the sake of neutrality. Generally, Brian was not literal minded in his approach to the Bible when it didn't have to do with the special creation of man. This is shown by his admission to Darrow that the seven days of creation in Genesis might not be literal days, but ages. And this is on your, what's a lecture without a handout? It's on one side of your handout is a a snippet from that famous uh, grilling of Brian on the next to last day of the trial. The part of it where he admits to uh, Darrow that days might be read broadly as meaning ages, periods. And this admission, by the way, uh, uh, brought him uh, uh, into disfavor with with some fundamentalists post-mortem, including Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. They've never forgiven him for not taking the Bible literally on that important point although not Billy Graham, in, interestingly enough. Uh, he accepts the view that Genesis, and I'm quoting, was a pictorial depiction of progressive creationism spanning eons. Moreover, Bryan was not anti-feminist, anti-Semitic, or anti-Catholic, like many of his fundamentalist followers. And as a Presbyterian moderate, he espoused the social gospel, condemned by the right wing of evangelism. It must be said that his record on race was not good, but then whose was. Uh, He uh, despised the Ku Klux Klan, but he opposed an anti-Klan plank because of his Midwest and Southern political base. As for his defense of Tennessee's Butler Act, which made it unlawful to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals, the prevailing view of the establishment clause in the First Amendment at the time was that it simply forbade the government from giving preference to any one church denomination. From that narrow perspective, the Butler Act passed constitutional muster in those days. What came to obsess Bryan about evolution was social Darwinism. The idea that the poor must be neglected in the name of a progress which betters the race. Whether or not that is a misreading of Darwin, that is how both Mencken and Darrow understood him. Mencken went further and identified Nietzsche's Superman with Darwin's fittest and summed up the result thus. Now he's paraphrasing uh, Nietzsche in in this regard. The strong must go stronger and that they may do so, they must waste no strength in the vain task of trying to lift up the weak. That's in his book on the philosophy of Nietzsche, 1908. Two years later, in his book, Men Versus the Man, he seems to ratify that view on his own account. Bryan, on the other hand, thought that progress came from supporting the weaker. So we have a clash of fundamentalist titans, Mencken, says Wills, was a literalist in ways later scholars have derided in applying Darwin to human ethics. And Bryan blamed German militarism on Darwinism by way of Nietzsche, who, he said, carried Darwinism to its logical conclusion and denied the existence of God, denounced Christianity as the doctrine of the degenerate and democracy as the refuge of the weakling. He overthrew all standards of morality and eulogized war as necessary to to man's development. Both Darrow and Mencken found in Nietzsche justification for their unpopulist lack of faith in the majority. Darrow did believe in democracy, unlike Mencken, but he felt that agitators were the real source of progress. Bryan, on the other hand, gave priority to popular rule over liberty, as the poet Edgar Lee Masters wrote in uh, The American Mercury. It is a political philosophy exactly the opposite of Mencken's, who of course favored liberty over popular rule and did not favor democracy. And unlike Bryan, many progressives saw democracy as just one means to the end of control. Many also had outright contempt for the masses, especially the rural masses, as the trial would prove. Time out. Mencken said, the thing to do, I argued, was to use the case to make Tennessee forever infamous. And to that end, the sacrifice of scopes would be a small matter. Above all, the thing to do was to lay all stress, not on Scopes, who was a nobody, but on Brian, who was an international figure, to lure him on the stand if possible, to make him state his barbaric credo in plain English, and to make a monkey of him before the world. The word monkey, of course, was very carefully chosen. The shadow trial was directed at the entire nation. Not the Daytonians, who Mencken had written off ahead of time as homo Neanderthalensis. (laughs) Not all the liberal media approved. The New Republic, for one, objected to the hostile tone of the defense, acknowledging, as did Mencken, that Tennessee had a right to pass the Butler Act. The article said that the law's nullification by a court would be an abuse of judicial power rather than creating villains and expecting a happy ending in a higher court. It went on to say, the defense should have planned its case in order to bring home to the uh, citizens of Tennessee their responsibility for a deplorable abuse of an admitted and desirable legal authority. This is the populist way. Education followed by ballot, not lawsuit. And it occurred in the year 2000 when Kansas... Voters repudiated an anti evolution state school board. Not that the course of true learning ever did run smooth, as we know from current battles going on in Texas and Georgia over this very issue. Mencken admitted that the real zanies were from the hills, not the town. The reporters enjoyed Dayton and admired the townfolk for their hospitality. But again, The satiric scripting was abetted by both the Daytonians and the hill folk, who, together with motley strangers, turned the neighborhood into a commercial and evangelical carnival. Since this is the image of the trial Mencken wished to make permanent, he joined in by handing out to the yokels a fake flyer designed by the same Edgar Lee Masters, the poet who wrote Spoon River Anthology and who had been a law partner of Clarence Darrow in Chicago. That's on one side of your handout. That's Mencken, or rather, Master's fake flyer to kind of pump up the absurdity of of affairs. Mencken would argue you couldn't tell it from the real flyers. And in order to distract and evade the preacher T.T. Martin, Mencken concocted another hoax. He and his colleague, Henry Hyde, told Martin that Cincinnati Bolsheviks were reportedly en route to Dayton to butcher William Jennings Bryan. So cops from Dayton and Chattanooga rushed to the train station and pounced on an innocent man. (laughs) Uh, I mentioned at the outset that Mencken's written version of the Scopes trial was a hoax on the order of his famous bathtub hoax. And pranks like these only seem to lend credence to it. For Brian, it was the Superman trial, not the monkey trial. A defense of the populace against secular experts. He felt that you should be able to demand that a teacher teach the facts you wanted, just as you could demand that a house painter follow your color scheme. On the narrow point of popular control of public education, even the New York Times agreed with Brian and it would have been difficult to challenge him on it in the courts of those days or among the public. The prosecutor tried to keep the focus on what he considered the main point of the Butler Act, which was that the legislature had a right to control state funds and to prevent any subject from being taught. Mencken concurred that free speech was not the issue. Not surprisingly, Darrow's stirring attack upon the fires that have been lighted in America to kindle religious bigotry and hate did not move Judge Ralston to quash the indictment or find the act unconstitutional, because Scopes was free to teach evolution in some other forum. As Larson notes, the court had adopted the prosecution's position, which accorded with the general prevailing currents of constitutional interpretation in those days. Wills makes the point that what I have called the shadow trial, or Mencken's hoax, was really taking place in the media. This was among the earliest and greatest media events, with radio lines in the courtroom. It was the first trial ever broadcast, and hordes of photographers and reporters present. The grilling of Brian, unheard by the jury, was given out of doors to accommodate the crowds. One study of the media coverage concludes, while much of the reporting in the newspapers and magazines was taken from verbatim accounts of court proceedings, press conferences, sermons, and interviews, it was the choice of quotations selected by the media, the charged headlines of articles, the slant of editorials, and the nature of cartoons that came to support the monkey trial myth. Darrow was there against the wishes of the ACLU because of Mencken, who consulted with him throughout the trial, and because Scopes continued to hold on to him. The state Supreme Court neatly responded to this blot on Tennessee's honor created by Mencken and Darrow's circus, both by upholding the Butler Act and by throwing out Scopes' conviction under it. They used a technicality regarding how the sentence was uh, assessed. The jury was supposed to do it and not the judge, so they found this neat way of uh, of getting him off. And the matter went no further, the Chief Justice said, uh, because we see nothing to be gained by prolonging the life of this bizarre case. He suggested that the Attorney General drop the indictment rather than retry scopes. That was done, thereby outflanking the ACLU. There was no longer a case to bring to the U.S. Supreme Court. Winning one trial meant losing, that is the shadow trial, meant losing the real trial. Though paradoxically, Darrow's client got off as usual. But that was not what he wanted. Moreover, he had inadvertently created sympathy for Bryan and his cause. The upshot was that the anti-evolution law stayed on the books for 42 years. Tennessee repealed it just before the Supreme Court struck down a similar Arkansas statute in 1968. No one else in Tennessee had been tried under the Butler Act, but that was largely because of self-censorship by publishers across the nation who removed Darwin from high school texts. The teaching of evolution declined in America until Sputnik prodded a long look at high school textbooks. That's one of the parts of the story that you miss if you read only what Mencken scripted, which was a triumph of art and propaganda. John Scopes, ostensibly at the center of the affair, never saw things the way Mencken did. As late as a 1970 interview with Bynum Shaw in Esquire, he was defending Bryan and the town folk and expressing skepticism over Mencken. Small wonder that he was treated as a cipher from the beginning by Mencken. At the actual center was Brian, thanks to Darrow's maneuver. The moral argument against social Darwinism that Brian raised was actually evaded by the attack on Genesis in Darrow's questioning. Willis, uh, Wills, I'm sorry, sees Darrow's own scripting of the trial as a morality play, but one in which Brian is cast as a demon capable of any cruelty and the New Republic deplored what it called the Scope's attorney's melodrama. Mencken expanded this line of demonization in his famous obituary of Brian on July 27th. He said, among many other things, Brian was a vulgar and common man, a cad undiluted. He was ignorant, bigoted, self-seeking, blatant, and dishonest. His career brought him into contact with the first men of his time, He preferred the company of rustic ignoramuses. Peace was so vitriolic that the Baltimore Sun thought it prudent to run an unsigned straight obit beside it. It was written by Mencken's friend Gerald Johnson, the subject of Vince's uh, splendid biography. Uh, The authors of Inherit the Wind Not finding justification for Mencken's portrait of Brian in the actual transcript of the trial invented a girlfriend of the Scopes figure for the Brian figure to bully on the stand, thereby making him conform to the Brian of the Shadow trial. One can set aside minor instances of poetic license, such as having the Scopes figure jailed when the real Scopes was not arrested, arraigned, or imprisoned, but not a profound change such as having the Bryan figure assail evolution solely on biblical grounds, never suggesting the broad social concerns that largely motivated Bryan. In Hunter's Civic Biology, the Scopes textbook, uh, the one from which he supposedly taught, the subject of evolution occupies about five pages. The discussion concludes with a brief list of the five races or varieties of man, beginning with the Ethiopian or Negro type originating in Africa and ending with the highest type of all. Need need I go on? (laughs) The Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. I suspect that no one involved in the trial, including Brian, would have disagreed with that last sentence but the question remains whether Bryan ought to be demonized for not wanting to yoke that and related ideas to Darwin. Among those related ideas were eugenics and its offshoot forced sterilization, which was the one practical application of Darwinism. Embracing the views of many evolutionary biologists, Hunter's Civic Biology, the Scopes textbook, has a chapter on heredity and variation, in which the student is taught that evolution can be directed by applying the laws of selection. One has a duty to participate, it says in the paragraph headed eugenics. For such conditions as tuberculosis, epilepsy, and feeble-mindedness are handicaps which it is not only unfair, but criminal to hand down to posterity. Hunter argues that physical, mental, and moral defects can be passed along through several generations. Such families, he says, not only do harm to others by corrupting, stealing, or spreading disease, but they are actually protected and cared for by the state out of public money. Largely for them, the poorhouse and the asylum exist. They take from society, but they give nothing in return. They are true parasites. The remedy... I'm still quoting. If such people were lower animals, we would probably kill them off to prevent them from spreading. This is in a high school textbook. Humanity will not allow this, he graciously concedes, but we do have the remedy of separating the sexes in asylums or other places and in various ways preventing intermarriage and the possibilities of perpetuating such a low and degenerate race. Uh, In various ways, preventing the possibilities. That's a euphemism for forced sterilization. The textbook incorporated the research of eugenist Charles B. Davenport, who was one of the six best known potential witnesses for Scope's defense. It was while arguing against these experts that Bryan got carried away and notoriously claimed that man was not a mammal. In fact, Davenport and the other five could not be allowed to testify because all of them favored coercive eugenic measures, which Darrow, to his credit, condemned as incompatible with human rights. In fact, he wrote an article a year later in the American Mercury on the eugenics cult. And a year after that, Mencken weighed in in 1927 in Prejudice's Six Theories. He had misgivings about eugenics also, mainly it's overemphasis on heredity as opposed to the environment. For Brian, eugenics was reason enough not to teach evolution, and he would have argued this in his closing speech. By the end of the 1920s, 28 states had compulsory sterilization laws, and some 15,000 of the eugenically unfit had been sterilized. That total would double in the next decade. Not coincidentally, between 1915 and 1930, 30 states passed laws against interracial marriage. Virginia's model sterilization law was upheld by the Supreme Court 8 to 1, and the majority included the progressives William Howard Taft and Louis Brandeis. In Germany, sterilization was illegal until Hitler changed the law in 1933. Two million people were ordered sterilized by his eugenics courts thereafter. In America, to quote an AP story of a Virginia man who was uh, sterilized when young because he repeatedly ran away from home and was deemed uncontrollable, they treated us just like hogs, like we had no feelings. The photo shows him holding his World War II bronze star, purple heart, and POW medals. The rationale for such programs was foreshadowed by Darwin's book, Descent of Man, 1871, in a passage lamenting the altruism that allows the weak in civilized societies to propagate their kind to the detriment of the race, which Brian quoted both in his own book, In His Image, 1921, and in the address he was not permitted to make to the jury in the Scopes trial. In 1922, one may find Darwin's thesis fully fledged in Margaret Sanger's book, The Pivot of Civilization, especially the chapter on the cruelty of charity, wherein she describes philanthropy as the surest sign that our civilization has bred, is breeding, and is perpetuating, constantly increasing numbers of defectives, delinquents, and dependents. Loves alliteration the dead weight of human waste that may be found in institutions. Feeble-mindedness and outright insanity are inherited traits, she assumes. As stated in an appendix of the book, sterilization of such groups is among the aims of the American Birth Control League, a forerunner of Planned Parenthood. Sanger believed that the unfit were multiplying at so frightening a rate that in regards to our democracy, something would have to be done about the pathological worship of mere number. And she agreed with those who were opposed to such Bryan-esque populist, (coughs) excuse me, majoritarian reforms as the primary, the direct election of senators, the initiative, the recall, and the referendum. Time out. Mencken's other fights on behalf of the First Amendment are entirely admirable. We heard about some of them this morning. For example, his rounding up of American literati to defend Dreiser in 1916, his risking the American mercury in the 1926 hat rack case. I showed David Thaler the spot in Boston called Brimstone Corner, where Mencken was arrested in that case. Uh, and uh, his opposition to the segregated, uh, his attack on the segregated uh, tennis courts in Baltimore in 1948, the last article he ever published. But the Scopes trial is one of the least creditable episodes of his life, though he acted in all innocence after years of studying religion and with the conviction that he was right about the moral imperative of opposing science to religious faith. Ironically, though liberals might cheer him in his battle against religion, he actually had an attitude no more advanced than that of the zealots he attacked. It was apparent in the trial and in his book, Treatise on the Gods, five years later, which is further evidence of that lifelong 19th century lens I referred to at the beginning. In his review of Treatise on the Gods, theologian Reinhold Niebuhr pointed out Mencken's limitations and dismissed the book with it really tells us little more than how one fanatic feels about other fanatics of a different stripe. <laughs> but Brian might have found some consolation in the fact that if Mencken could not escape the lure of Darwin, Nietzsche, and the higher criticism of the Bible, at least he rejected those other Victorian humbugs, Marx and Freud. Brian, by making concessions regarding the six days of creation, tried to evade the trap for fundamentalists set even farther back when Martin Luther and others rejected the medieval allegorical tradition, which held that Bible passages may be read on multiple levels simultaneously. William Tyndale, the reformer, Bible translator, and martyr, whose work heavily influenced the King James Version, wrote this in 1527 in The Lutheran Spirit. Thou shalt understand, therefore, that the scripture hath but one sense, which is the literal sense, and that literal sense is the root and ground of all and the anchor that never faileth, whereunto, if thou cleave, thou canst never err or go out of the way. But a thousand years earlier, St. Augustine had deconstructed the literal level of the creation story more profoundly than did Clarence Darrow. Between the years 389 and 416, he tried three different times to explain the hexameron, the six days of creation, in a literal sense. But each time he fell back on allegory. Augustine raised the questions that many readers have always had and still have about the creation story. Did God consume the whole day in creating the various works? How could there be days when there were not yet heavenly luminaries? How could there be light before the existence of the sun and the stars? This leads him to adopt simultaneous creation, to identify the light of the first day, fiat lux, let there be light, with the angels, and to explain the evening and the morning. You can see this in the snippet from Genesis I put on your handout uh, the kind of refrain at the end of each day's creation, the evening and the morning of the nth day, as meaning the limitation and the beauty of the various created objects. In his final trial, he again admits a simultaneous formation of the world. Everything was created at the same time. So that the six days indicate an order, a hierarchy of dignity the angels, the firmament, the earth, and so on. That's what it really means on a deeper level. Than the literal, he found support for this. Uh, he really had to go out of his way, looking for another biblical text that would justify this reading, in what's called the Book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, which is not in the Hebrew canon or the Protestant Bible, but is in the Vulgate. And in Sirach or Ecclesiasticus 18:1, it says, "Creavit omni simul. He created all things at once. There you are. In the later Middle Ages, commentators like Thomas Aquinas tended toward the literal in explaining the six days of creation without denying other levels beyond the factual. One of his general sources was Moses Maimonides, author of the famous Guide for the Perplexed in the year 1190. Aquinas called him the rabbi, as he called Aristotle the philosopher. And I thought I should consult the rabbi to be fair and balanced in my Approach here, uh, and the rabbi appears to argue for a kind of simultaneous creation. Uh, he cites a line in Isaiah, which is not obscure, uh, where it says, um, "The heavens and the uh, when I call unto the heavens and the earth, they stand up together." So that was enough for the rabbi. For example, he says the lights mentioned on the fourth day, the sun and the moon were actually the same that were created on the first day, let there be light, but were only fixed in their places on the fourth day. But that provides no help with the length of the days or eons of creation. All of this reminded me of another eminent theologian, Linus Van Pelt from Peanuts, in a line I used 150 times in the classroom. Linus said, there's no problem so big that you can't go around it. (laughs) <laughs> Mark those words. And by that I mean the ultimate answer to this, this question is to fall back on miracle. God can do whatever he wants. Uh, that's what many theologians finally throwing up their hands have done <clears throat> from ancient times to the present. And that's essentially what Brian does, again, in that snippet that I, I gave you. When Darrow, at the end of the snippet, when Darrow says, they had evening and morning for four periods without the sun and the moon, do you think? Brian says, I believe in creation as they're told, and if I am not able to explain it, I will accept it. So there. In the matter of reading Genesis, finally, Karen Armstrong's The Battle for God, a study of fundamentalism in the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim religions, Uh, She makes the Protestant yokels of Tennessee uh, more sympathetic, I think. She reveals an additional irony in their theology. For the fundamentalists' attempt to read the Bible as history is a modern response, a scientific way of trying to establish the Bible's truth by modern standards instead of the pre-modern way of understanding the Bible as mythos, her word myth, something capable of many meanings extendable to the present. This was a fatal concession, one that the fundamentalists had thought necessary in the wake of the higher criticism and the generally rational bias of the modern world. Faith had to be rational, writes Armstrong. Mythos had to be logos. It was now very difficult to see truth as anything other than factual or scientific. By mythos, again, she means the timeless and the constant. And by logos, the rational and the pragmatic. Last one. It could be said that Clarence Darrow won the battle of rationalisms. Uh, in the trial, because eventually free speech and the autonomy of scientific inquiry triumphed over the right of ordinary people to reject theories they found immoral. However, the two sides had much in common. Armstrong writes, Darrow and Mencken were also wrong to assume that fundamentalists belonged entirely to the old world. They were as addicted to scientific rationalism as any other modernists. Doctrines were not theological speculations, but facts. Fundamentalists were trying to create a new way of being religious in an age that valued the logos of science above all else. That's how Mencken valued science. But his writing on the Scopes trial produced mythos, a timeless parable against intolerance that, in order to be morally true, must be separated from the logos, the empirical truth, of the actual event. In that way, one can take as gospel the spirit of Mencken's satire, though not the letter of it. And one can also acknowledge that despite Brian's frequent literal mindedness when it came to Genesis, his warnings about the junk science behind social Darwinism have been justified by appalling evidence and affirmed by better science. And they are soundly based on the letter and the spirit of the Bible. Thank you. Questions?
2: I'm um, i i th- I really enjoyed your speech and thank you very very much um, I wonder if you're aware and I guess you are of um, um, WC uh, w. Curtis one of the uh, scientists who uh, was uh, uh, going to speak for the defense um, and uh, I don't think these scientists got to if I'm right no, I, mean, they I did think the but there, he wrote in his memoirs that um, I had, had a chance to look at them at the University of Missouri, and perhaps you've seen them, no. that um, he, uh, he tried to, to talk to Mencken, but Mencken was unavailable. But Curtis wrote, the courtroom audience impressed me as honest country folk in blue jeans and calico, boobs perhaps as judged by Mencken, and holding all the prejudices of backwoods Christian orthodoxy, but nevertheless a significant section of the backbone of democracy in the USA. So I I thought that was a very interesting thing for uh, a, a biologist to say. And another biologist who wrote a long line similar to what you've talked about is Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote an essay on William Jennings Bryan and you would have thought that Gould might have attacked Brian for this uh, his, his his view on evolution. But Gould, who was a very strong evolutionist, he called his theory punctuated evolution, punctuated, felt that um, Brian's point against social Darwinism was very important to make. And it was a very interesting essay in defense of William Jennings Bryan from someone you might never have expected to 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 write something like that so I just point these out as small footnotes to uh, the the wonderful erudite uh, speech that you gave thank you
1: that's an important point that uh, just as the uh, Histories tend to bury eugenics and forced sterilization and all of that. You'll seldom read anything about that, especially about Margaret Sanger, who's now a liberal hero. Uh, And and to be fair, uh, Planned Parenthood has totally disavowed that unfortunate past. Uh, And the other thing is about evolution itself. Brian was well read on, he read Darwin. And the case for Darwin was not as strong as it is today. And there were plenty of hoaxes that kept getting exposed, like Piltdown Man uh, that was cited in those days in support of dissent from apes, uh, the crude way that they, they used to put it. So uh, that's why Darrow did not want to be counter-interrogated by Brian. After he'd crucified Brian, he just changed the plea to guilty so he wouldn't have to try to defend Darwin. I know, I heard him. Uh,
3: two, two minor questions, I suppose. One, um, Ken Burns did a special about 20, it seemed like 15 or 20 years ago on the Scopes trial, which kind of re- more mirrored what you had to say. That is that the Tennessee folks had really planned on this. It was a. It was an attempt to revive the economic uh, engine of eastern, uh, that part of mm-hmm. eastern Tennessee. And so uh, would it be fair to say that you would support that his particular interpretation? That would be questions. Yes.
1: In fact, I brought with me a, f- a friend of mine. Uh, her relatives came from Dayton, and uh, there were all sorts of publicity shots made of the group that conspired to bring about the trial. They congratulated themselves, thinking this is great publicity for the town. And uh, she owns a postcard signed by everyone involved in the, uh, for the defense of, uh, of Scopes, including Scopes himself. I have a picture of it in my folder there. So absolutely, it was a publicity stunt uh, that backfired.
4: <laughs> well,
3: it seems to me, just to respond a little bit, that, that that kind of hucksterism was also something that Mencken in history really detested. Uh, he he just, uh, as the t-shirt says. Second point.
1: Go-getters, yes.
3: Second point. The movie Inherit the Wind, that play, was written at the time of McCarthy. It's my understanding that it was really directed at McCarthyism and what it stood for, as opposed to an attack on Brian and a rehashing of... That's,
1: that's, that's a post facto rationalization. Uh, it was written in 1955, to be sure. I think it was actually completed in 1950, and I don't believe McCarthy was strong yet. And I've now, I, in my longer version of this, this has gone through many evolutions. Pardon the word. Uh, <laughs> I I looked into that. They say that in the preface, the the published preface to the play that. It's art. It's not history. You look at the cast photos from the original production, and it's all it's 1920s, and it was clear all the reviewers understood it to be a takeoff of the Scopes trial. Yet the implied subtext is McCarthy, just as the subtext of Arthur Miller's The Crucible is uh, is McCarthy. But it's still it's about, it's about. I mean, you have a man on trial for teaching evolution, and you have a bombastic prosecutor and Heroic Defender, played by Spencer Tracy. Mencken is played by Gene Kelly in the movie. Uh, there were a series of interesting Menckens, by the way. A the, uh, little-known fact, the first Mencken character, who's called E.K. Hornbeck in the play, was Tony Randall, and then Gene Kelly in the movies. Then it was done three times on TV. The first Mencken character was um, I forget his name, but he played the mayor of Amity Island on Jaws. In Jaws, uh, the second was Darren McGavin, whom you know as Ralphie's old man in Christmas Story, and the third was Bo Bridges. Uh, go figure. So I think it's I think both are true. They may have had McCarthy in the back of their minds, but the fr- the framework. The superstructure is clearly the scopes trial. Well, certainly in 1948, Nixon and the Hassan American Activities Committee was going. So there was a certain strain of uh, yep. how dare you think
2: like this, uh, you know, that's, that's right. not American, like, etc. It was conceivable, but I'm sure he gave me the mic. <laughs> um, wasn't Mencken's concern about the New Deal that it would bankrupt America? And do you think it has happened?
4: Uh, uh,
1: yes, but it was more than that. he He published a famous front page editorial. What was it called? The Million Dot Editor? No, it, the, dots. The, dots. the dots. He had a dot on the front page for every government employee. And it just covered the uh, front page. Uh, so, yes, he, what he called government snouters were multiplying. At a, at a, but it was it was individual liberty he was worried about, you know, all the regulations. Whether we're bankrupt, I don't know. Uh, I'll plead the fifth on that.
4: Sir, you mentioned how. Social Darwinism uh, was very prominent in thinking uh, behind uh, Garrow and maybe Mencken, or at least uh, these 19th century liberals, as you once phrased them, hmm. as it evolved. But would you say that Mencken uh, is also guilty of the later sins that you described? In other words, did Mencken advocate sterilization? Did, I looked. I don't think I don't he think ever uh, denounced oh. pr- private charity. In other words, I think the uh, masking is is Menken guilty also of sort of the historical trend that when this thing really went no, uh,
1: I, know, I don't think you way. can hold I don't think you can hold him responsible for that. I don't think he went that far in being I agree a so. I with uh,
2: Justice Holmes that two generations of morons are enough. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, I, Im- yeah. Yeah. I i couldn't find anything about forced sterilization now he may i don't know what he uh, what he thought about government charity handouts questions
4: i think the uh, uh what i will retain from uh, this lecture from uh, you as an educator uh has to do with thinking that he really was a person who saw what could possibly happen, and I think that this idea about his uh, putting forward the idea that eugenics is bad, I think, is a is yeah. is a very important one, and I think that that certainly has been uh, underplayed. I, I I've read not much on the Scopes trial and having looking at it from a, a point of view of Mencken, you're, you're, you're left with this arc of history. Mm. And I'm very glad that you've uh, helped uh, re-explore it. But the, and the challenge really is, is that, I hate to use the analogy, but the devil is in the details. Mm. And when you really explain that what Scopes was teaching was really um, horrific uh, in modern day terms. I think we're, we're left with uh, having to do, uh, to, to stay intellectually uh, honest, uh, we really have to look and weigh all the different aspects mm-hmm. of what came out of the trial. But actually, my question has to do more with you as a medievalist and how you came to I was
1: waiting for that.
4: Uh, see um, what the importance of the trial was, and in trying to link it with the idea of the uh, creation as viewed in medieval times, I'm always struck by what happened during the Reformation when uh, the Protestants did decide to uh, say that there is certain things that are predetermined. And whereas Catholics uh, were less inclined in saying that. And I think this idea of choice, I think, is an important one that brings over to how social Darwinism really was uh, perhaps even given a bit of an impetus by the Scopes trial. Uh, and I, I don't know whether you can uh, elaborate on that, but I've left you free to answer any little bits of my question. Well, Thanks.
1: The bit I'd like to pick up on is the idea of choice and free will. Uh, you're talking about predestination, which I think Augustine believed in that, who as a teacher of mindset he invented the Middle Ages. You know, he was the most important thinker for indeed the next thousand years in, in Christianity. Uh, But Darrow and Mencken claimed not to believe in free will. They were Nietzscheans in that sense. All these overwhelming forces that are out there. That's different from theological predestination. But maybe that's what you were getting at. The spirit of the two kind of came together at at Dayton in, in a strange way. And may have fed off each other.
0: Let's make this the last question. Um, I'll take you here since you're closest.
2: Uh, Mencken once described Baltimore as being the ruins of a once great medieval city. Uh, (laughs) the, The church bells that tried to Drown you out or perhaps an example of uh, They didn't of know that.
1: where I was going with this.
2: <laughs> uh, do you find any other uh, evidence of a fondness uh, that Mencken had for things medieval, since he seemed to be fond of Baltimore oh, he throughout he loved the life.
1: ritual of the Catholic Church, uh, and he would have been appalled at the translation of the Latin Mass into English. He said that the... Uh, The man who was principally responsible for the decay of Christianity in France was the one who translated the Bible into beautiful French. Uh, Yeah, I I think of all the religions, he respected that the most, not because he believed any of it, but because of the the solemnity and dignity and antiquity of it, he could appreciate. And I suppose its contributions to learning, uh, the founding of universities, uh, that sort of thing. Absolutely. You know, especially German Catholics. Well, Irish Catholics too. Uh, Let me make this my final comment then. Uh, Michael Kazin, I think he spoke here a couple years ago on on the Scopes trial, and he pointed out, why is Macon so hysterical about Brian above all other politicians that he could get hysterical about when Brian had done so much good in, in his life. And it's probably two reasons, one of which Kaysen talked about, and that is uh, for the first time at the Scopes trial, Mencken saw revivalism, that brand of uh, fundamentalism, up close. And he was horrified at, that these people are trying to take over democracy and control us. And the second reason allied to that is uh, prohibition. I think if Brian had not been uh, dry, you would, he, uh, Mencken would not have written that editorial, that, that obituary. <laughs> but the two together, those, that's the unforgivable oh. sin. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Dr. Schrader, and we invite you to join us downstairs in the poll room on the second floor for uh, a reception, and you can continue to uh, have this discussion with Dr. Schrader there. Thank you all for coming.